Well, it's six minutes past uh, 12. Coming up at the hour, the Jogwe City Council met this morning, but not without its own fair share of drama, with the DA councillors walking out of the meeting. We'll find out more on that story as we will be speaking to the NC Chief within the Jogwe Council in, in the northwest, Akwatelikwete, and the DA Mayor, Annette Combrick. The couple blamed for the death of 10-month-old baby Samantha have each been sentenced to 18 years in jail by the South Gauteng High Court in Johannesburg. And over 100 grade 3 learners fell pregnant in 2009, about 26 in 2010. These are the latest tests from the Department of Basic Education. We look at these with our education specialist, Angela Boluana. Remember, we always welcome your thoughts and views on the stories we bring you. Do that by sending us an SMS to 34701. That's 34701. Or follow us on Twitter, and our Twitter handle is at SFM Midday Live, or email us at middaylive at sabc.co.za. The Jogwe Council met this morning, but not without its own fair share of drama with the DA councillors walking out of the meeting. This was the first meeting of the council in two months. No sittings have been held during that period because of an ongoing fight between the ANC and the DA-led coalition over the mayoral seat. For more on this, we joined on the line uh, by the ANC Chief Whip in the Jogwe Council, Northwest Dakota Lichwete. Uh, ANC Chief Whip, uh, good uh, day to you. Uh, good day, madam, and uh, good day to the viewers. And we also be jo- and we also joined on the line by Dame Mayor Annette Combrick, Ms. Combrick. Uh, uh, good day to you. Yes, it's good speaking to you. Thank you very much, and to the listeners. Uh, Chief Whip, let me start with you. Today you met for the first time in months, but you couldn't even have a proper sitting of the council. What are, what are the issues there? Look, the issues today was to deal with the agenda items were related to the continuation meeting as well as the uh, ordinary council meeting. Uh, uh, what is in the two agenda uh, items was also the issue, the motion that we have submitted as the ANC to remove uh, the DNA. Huh? You know, in terms of our rules of order, you can only respect that decision uh, that was taken on the 7th of uh, July up until today, which is the 7th of March, full three months which means that the ANC can review the decision which was taken on that day. Now what is happening is that the DA is afraid because we tally. We are 23, they are 23, and it means the speaker is a casting vote and the speaker is the speaker of the ANC. So we don't want to get this pain of the ANC getting office again. But we have told them that it's inevitable, they can run away, but they will not hide. That time is still going to come where we will get the council city, where we will resolve on the business of council. But what is worse of everything, is that the DA is refusing a council to adopt the process plan, uh, the budget processes, as well as adopting some of the capital programs which needs to be implemented so that we ensure that services are delivered to our people. Mm. And this we see it as a narrow, selfish political interest from the side of the DA because they claim all over that wherever they govern, they govern better. But now the city council of Clover, it's in a mess, it's in an nasty situation because of their selfish, narrow political interest. Right. I think it's a matter that we we'll have to speak to because now the DA is only worried about holding on to office. He's not worried about providing basic services to our communities. All right. The thing that let me speak. All right, Mr. Lichode, let me speak to the mayor to find out their reasons for walking out. The chief whip says you are afraid. You don't want this process to go any further. Talk to us uh, what your reasons were and your thoughts on what he has, to, uh, he has said now. Well, they're rather sparing with the truth. The, the fact of the matter is that we've been trying since the 2nd of July. We were first going to have a continuation meeting because that meeting was not completed on the 5th of July. And ever since then, the uh, ANC has tried on, uh, one, on more than one occasion to set up a special meeting. You cannot have a special meeting or any other council meeting unless and until you've had the continuation meeting and completed the business of the meeting of the 2nd of July. It's now exactly three months since the first time that we've succeeded in setting up a meeting. This meeting was convened by the Speaker for today with an agenda. The agenda was already closed on the 2nd of July. The Speaker then subsequently sent out a notice for, a, for a, an additional meeting, meeting number 111, with a different uh, agenda, uh, but that was to follow. It says so in the notice. It has to follow directly on the uh, ordinary, on the continuation meeting of, which is number 110. We agreed that we would attend the meeting of the the 110th meeting, because that was a continuation meeting with important business to contract. Then uh, the uh, meeting 111 contained, among others, the motions and so on, 
But we were insistent that we first have to finish the business of meeting number 110. And then the speaker, when they tried to uh, move around the meetings and start with 111 this morning, we walked out uh, because it, it is procedurally incorrect. All right. So then uh, they started uh, with 110, but then insisted on putting the certain items into the agenda, which is not permissible. It is not true that we're, not try- that we're trying to overturn things, that we're trying to be obstructive. We want to do things, but we want to do them correctly. And so we stand at the moment at a stalemate. All right. We are we have the same number of seats in the in the council, and there are six by elections to come. Let's do the by elections, and then everybody accept the outcome and the voice of the people. Mayor, all right. With all the bickering, the people of Tlokke are the ones who are suffering. If the council is not sitting, that means there are no decisions taken in the municipality. Aren't you worried that the people you are serving are not getting the services due to them? The people are getting the services. They, they're getting their accounts, they're getting their water, they're getting their electricity. Certain more structural things have been delayed somewhat, but the more important things are happening. We need to uh, give attention to the Dolomite situation. For the moment, there is a task team that is working on it. So uh, for the moment, the ordinary people might not even notice what's going on among the politicians, which I'm pleased about because, because politicians should not disrupt people's lives. But we have been pushed into an intolerable situation. And in a meeting, we were called thieves, lunatics, and other names. And we cannot tolerate that. Mm. Uh, Chief Whip, I wanted to go back to the issue that the DA has raised with regards to the procedure. Um, they want continuation. Just wondering whether you're considering the reasons they've put uh, forward in terms of why they walked out today. No, look, uh, it's not, uh, I think uh, my, the Honorable uh, Councillor is also aware that some of his economy is the truth. The point of the matter is we even told by their leader, that they are not a club, they are a political party. It's in them to run away with the process of dealing with the issue of the motion. But second to that particular point is that we have not said for the past three months. And now what is the dangerous is that we are supposed to have dealt with the budget adjustment for January. We are supposed to deal with the IDP process plan as well as the IDP, which will allow us to deal with capital items so that we can deliver services to our people, roads, water, and other things. Issue of the account and lighting and water and everything, those are things which council does on a daily basis in terms of administration. But the things that the, the political leadership needs to do, which needs to give effect to the administration to implement, they are not being processed because it's not decision-making. We are stuck because of the DRU and their selfish, narrow political interest in which they are only considering uh, a point of holding on to office and to power, but they don't care about basic amenities and services that needs to go to the communities. And in this case, the community of Ikahe, of Mohadin and Promosa are by and large affected because they are the ones with the low level of service delivery as a result of, you know, that the previously disadvantaged individuals are mainly staying in those communities, western townships of Tlokwe. Uh, and I think it's wrong also from the side of the DA to want to claim that we did not want to sit in meetings. DA, by the way, if we talk politics, because of the, they are now an exacting authority, it means that the ruling party, you can't have a ruling party that walks away from a council meeting when it has to face the responsibilities of ensuring that we deliver to our services, services to our people. They are running away. What type of government are they? Okay. If they say they govern better where they govern. What is this thing of a ruling party running away from a meeting? Let me put this forward to you then, Chief Whip, that what is the way forward? We will see the DA and the ANC finding a common ground and working together and restoring peace in Tlokwe. Look, there was stability in this municipality until We want to get back to that particular stability. And what we'll do at the ANC now, we're going to roll up our sleeves, uh, work in the ground as we've been doing, ensure that we win the forthcoming by elections on the 23rd. And eventually, the speaker, what we have requested and resolved about is that we must call a council meeting on the 25th so that we reclaim all our words and reclaim even our existing uh, authority as a ruling party in this city because the DA is just messing us up. We are in a nasty situation. We can't account to the Auditor General, we can't account to the National Treasury and Treasury because of other things which council needs to resolve for. Right. cannot be done because they are running away. With the they are just worried about the office, not our people. All right, and to the mayor, the way forward. I see the way forward as an orderly participation in the by-election process. 
from the DA coalition side, we undertake that if we lose those by-elections, we will commit and we will work together. We have already indicated that if the ANC regains a majority in the council, that I will stand down. They won't need to bring a motion because I think that's a responsible thing to do. But until those by-elections have been contested, we feel that we must go ahead. We must each have an equal chance to fight those by-elections and to do the responsible thing. Uh, I'm very sorry to have to say this, but, you know, the DA has now had three months. Prior to that, we had three months. Certain things we've been able to do, but you can't undo in three months what the, uh, what the previous ruling party, sometimes they say we're the ruling party, other times they don't. Uh, uh, but what, uh, in the course of 19 years, they haven't really been uh, able to, to do much about. All right. We want to put our money where our mouth is. We're an equal opportunity society, is what the DA said. Our coalition partners agree with us about most of the things that we want to do, and we'll do that, and we'll do it in a responsible manner. But if we lose the by-elections, we will commit to the city council and work together, as we did before. All right, thank you very much. And that was the NC Chief Whip at the Jokwet City Council, Dakota Lukwete, and the DA Mayor, Annette Combrick. Time now, 17 minutes past 12. And our top story at the hour, the couple convicted for the murder of a 10-month-old baby. Samantha has each been sentenced to 18 years in jail by the South Gauteng High Court in Johannesburg. Looking at the markets, gold is trading at $1,294.17 an ounce. Platinum at $1,386.10 an ounce. The rand is trading at 10 rands and 11 cents against the U.S. dollar and 16 rands and 38 cents to the pound and the 13 rands and 68 cents to the euro. Africa's biggest news platform, SABC News, knows what's going on in your world. Get all your latest business news updates on News at One. News at One hosts business leaders, movers and shakers from industries, and it brings you live market updates from the JSE. Get it all from 1 p.m. Find us on Channel 404 on DSTV, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. SABC News, all local, all global, all the time. Packed with all the latest arts and culture news, the October issue of Classic Field Magazine celebrates the 30th anniversary of the KZN Philharmonic Orchestra and explores the kinetic sculptures of local artist Justin Fisk. Included with this issue is the first edition of Classic Field's annual Classic Woman Supplement, profiling the formidable women driving the arts in South Africa. Get your copy of Classic Field Magazine now at selected newsagents and bookstores. For more, visit www.classicfield.coza. We'd like to ask you a question. What do the words to prosper mean to you? Take a moment to think about it. It's interesting, isn't it? We asked South Africans across the country what to prosper means to them. We had a lot of answers back, inspiring answers. Invariably, it was about something more than money, often to do with providing for loved ones, always. It was about wanting to create a better life. We understand. That's why at ABSA, the products we offer, the services we render, the loans we make, and the advice we give are not just there to help you live. They're here for you to prosper. ABSA is a member of Barclays, an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. The couple blamed for the death of a 10-month-old baby, Samantha, have each been sentenced to 18 years in jail by the South Gauteng High Court in Johannesburg. Andrew Neto and the child's mother were sentenced after being found guilty of culpable homicide, child abuse and rape. Baby Samantha died in March last year. Neto said the judge was unfair because there was no proof and evidence of abuse. For more on this, we joined in the studio by our reporter, Horisani Sutole. Horisani, good day. And uh, just uh, take us through uh, today's court proceedings. Uh, it was a very brief, brief I mean, proceeding because you remember the matters was supposed to have been done by Monday, but then due to time uh, they had to postpone it to today. But then 
uh, while passing the judgment, judge uh, mentioned that they both deserved life because uh, the, what they did, it's, it's, it's something that's very terrible. I mean, child abuse is something that can be tolerated in South Africa. But then he outlined that because they have other children, which are three, uh, it wouldn't be good for, for those three to grow up not knowing where their parents are. So he, he had to give them a sentence which was a bit lighter, according to him. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, it was like they were given four for culpable homicide and then uh, three for child abuse and then 15 for rape. But then the, the bringing the number down to 18 is because the two, uh, the two sentences which are culpable homicide and rape are going to run concurrently. Mm. Yes. Now, uh, what was the reaction from baby Samantha's parents? Uh, when it comes to this, this sentencing? Uh, the mother, I mean, since, since, since uh, I mean, even Monday, she's been crying ever since we got to court. I mean, she, she, she even mentioned on Monday that uh, during a testimony that she, it's not something that uh, she wanted it to happen and it's something that's going to live within her for the rest of her life. Uh, but uh, NATO, he, he was still smiling there and then was talking to his lawyer, so didn't show any remorse. Mm. But I mean, uh, the prosecutor, uh, Rihanna Williams, told the court the woman had shown no remorse. I mean, where is this uh, coming from? I I mean, that could have been talking about the past events, but then I'm I'm, I'm saying uh, what the way she was looking now. Yes, yes, yes. But then if we go back, maybe looking at the event, I mean, the way the baby died, we could we could say that uh, she didn't show any remorse. But then, as she, she admits that she doesn't, uh, she didn't act like a parent, you know. What, uh, I mean, as a parent, you have to protect your children. She didn't act, act like a parent. That's why she said uh, this thing is going to live within her. All right, and that's our reporter, Horisani Sitole. Meanwhile, children's rights organization Childline Gauteng has welcomed the sentence. I only spoke to the head of Department of the Community Awareness and Prevention Program at Childline Gauteng, Gita Denon, about what their response uh, to the sentence has been. As Childline Gauteng, on the one hand, we are very pleased that there's been a conviction. South Africa's conviction rates are notoriously low for child abuse and child rape. So it's very pleasing that a conviction has been made. Um, on the other hand, however, the sentence is quite is quite small. We would have hoped for a much longer sentence and that they wouldn't be running concurrently. But why is a conviction of such cases low in the country? For a number of reasons, Sishanda, um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of it refer, uh, relates to non-reporting of cases, poor management of cases, poor investigation of cases. Um, a, a very heavy reliance on physical evidence, which is sometimes not present. Um, often, you know, the physical evidence is taken after the fact, um, and then there's no, there's no physical proof. Um, and so there, there are a lot of um, problems around the whole issue of investigating, collecting evidence, um, sufficiently and successfully interviewing child victims, um, putting them through the process of, of the child justice, you know, of this justice system, where they, do they get access to um, having an intermediary? Do they get access to child sexual abuse courts, you know, the specialised courts? And so all of these factors come into play, um, resulting in very low conviction rates. Mm, but how rampant is child abuse and child murders in South Africa? Look, um, the research that's been done by the Medical Research Council indicates that in South Africa, approximately three children per day are dying of unnatural causes. This is related to child abuse and infanticide and neglect, um, which is double the international statistics. So this indicates that we have a hugely, pro- a hugely problematic situation in the country that urgently needs to be dealt with. We need to look at... Um, unwanted pregnancies, we need to look at pregnancies that are the result of rape, and we need to look at all the factors that render children vulnerable to being abused and neglected. You did say that you were hoping for a longer sentence, but do you think this sentence now will contribute towards deterring abusive guardians of uh, children? Sisanda, we can only hope so. The, The case has received quite a lot of media attention, um, and when you think that if three children a day are dying, how many cases are not receiving that attention? We can only hope that this case deters parents, that they seek help. If they are struggling as parents, that they actually make a phone call to Childline um, and ask for assistance, that they get the support that they need as parents. 
And also the children are able to reach out and get help um, if, they, if they feel that they're being abused or neglected. And that was the head of department of the Community Awareness and Prevention Program at Chartline Gauteng, Gita Denon. South Africa and Senegal have vowed to work together through the African Union to call for the reform of the United Nations and the International Criminal Court. Both countries are economic and political powerhouses in the SADC and ECOWAS regional blocs, respectively. Some African countries have been calling for Africa's permanent representation in the UN Security Council and questioned the role of the ICC with the Kenyan MPs recently voting to withdraw from the Rome Statute, which established the court. President Jacob Zuma and his Senegalese counterpart, Macky Sall, said Africa needs to unite on such issues. Debu Mokobo reports. A call for the reform of institutions of global governance is gaining momentum, and the economic and political powerhouses of the West and Southern Africa, Senegal and South Africa have vowed to champion that at every available platform. Although having a population of 1 billion people from 54 countries, Africa has no permanent representation in the UN Security Council. Compounding its frustrations is a perception that the International Criminal Court is only targeting leaders from the African continent in its prosecutions. The latest before the ICC is Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and his Vice President William Ruto. They are tried for orchestrating ethnic violence that killed more than 1,000 people after the 2007 elections. But last month, Kenyan MPs voted to withdraw from the Rome Statute, which established the court. And Nairobi seems to be getting support from the continent, with 54 AU member states expected to gather in Addis Ababa next week to ponder on this issue. President Zuma elaborates. We also wish to work with Senegal to promote a more equitable and just world order. We are in particular keen to see a speedier transformation of international multilateral institutions, especially the United Nations Security Council, so that it can be more representative and responsive to the need of Africa and the developing world. We also look forward to the summit in Addis Ababa next week to discuss the International Criminal Court and its role. Senegalese President Sall said the transformation of the UN Security Council is non-negotiable, insisting that they will use the Ethiopian gathering to make sure Africa's voice is heard at all multilateral institutions. We really ought to change the situation at the United Nations. Today we are about one billion people spread over the 54 countries and it is not normal that Africa is not permanent member at the Security Council and as the President said at the next summit of the AU in Addis Ababa we will come with strong resolutions and proposals so that the voice of Africa is better heard at the international Meanwhile, President Zuma also stressed the need to strengthen the AU and its institutions. Both of us are also too aware of the importance of investing in infrastructure development in the continent so that we can better promote regional economic integration, intra-Africa trade and tourism. Our two countries have a history of promoting Africa's development, having worked together to promote the new partnership for Africa's development since its inception. We have a duty to take this legacy of our two countries forward and make the NEPAD a success. Both countries have been involved in peacekeeping missions within the continent. They are also leading infrastructure initiatives at the continental level, with Senegal leading the NEPAD Heads of State and Government Orientation Committee, while Pretoria is heading the Presidential Infrastructure Championing Initiative. Debu Mokobo for SAPC, Dhaka in Senegal. It's exactly 12.30 and time for news headlines with Hutzila Sagu. And we now cross to Shadow Twala. Hi, Shadow. What's coming up on Otherwise today? Hello, Sisanda. Today we ask the question, is online pornography the most destructive threat facing our youth? And we've invited Dr. Catherine Fenter, who's a clinical psychologist, and Balisa Gadi from the Film and Publications Board to answer those questions for us. 
Sounds interesting. Thank you. Now, we're continuing with Midday Live. According to latest stats from the Department of Basic Education, over 100 grade 3 learners fell pregnant in 2009 and about 26 in 2010. And this has been discovered by our senior education reporter, Angela Bolowana, who joins us in studio for more on this uh, shocking discovery. Shocking indeed. How did you come across this information? Well, um, it's an annual school survey report. Um, it's the one that was looking at schools in 2010 and 2011. Um, what it does is the department every year will look at different aspects um, in schooling, um, including, you know, how um, children are, are doing. And this, um, it will also include how many orphans we have and, and that kind of thing. So now, um, when, when it comes to learner pregnancy issues, it, um, the report says that in 2009, we had 109 um, pregnant grade 3 learners, although this number went down to 26 in 2010. Mm, but what are we talking about here? Seven, eight-year-olds? Well, um, normally your grade three learners are, um, are seven, eight, nine year olds. Um, so it's, the, the report itself does not, um, talk about the circumstances, does not talk about anything else, just, um, a, a breakdown of the numbers. I mean, in, in grade four, you have, um, in 20, in 2009, you have 107, and then it jumps up significantly in grade 5, where you have 297 and 571 in grade 6. Um, so these are worrying statistics, nonetheless, because these are learners that are below um, the age of 16. Mm. We understand that this is not a new issue, though. Well, it's not a new issue. Um, I think uh, we, we have come to a place where we um, sort of have, have made peace with the fact that on average you have around 40,000 learners falling pregnant every year. And if you look at um, the latest police statistics, you have 50,688 cases of violence against children that were reported. Now, that's an average of 140 cases a day. So this might actually correlate with that. Um, you you, you were um, remember that there's, you know, there's been um, discussions and and an outcry around issues of of um, abuse against um, young children. So this this might make sense, you know, in the context of the high number of um, violent cases. And we must remember these are cases that have been reported. Mm. Um, we don't know about the other cases um, that that have not come to attention to the authorities' attention. All right. Uh, one more question. You're obviously still working on this story. What can we look forward to? How will you be treating the story? Well, um, we're looking at um, uh, uh, the context it provides in terms of, um, you know, um, the place where it, where it places um, uh, educators and principals. Because according to law, if you pick up stuff like this, obviously this is rape, this is sexual abuse, you know, uh, this is violence against children. You have to report it. I've spoken to SAIS, uh, the South African Council of Educators, and they're saying that they their members, which are teachers around the country, are really not aware, most of them are not aware of their responsibility in terms of reporting these cases to, to, people, to the police or to other authorities. So we are looking at um, th those responsibilities. Mm. On a human level, something must be done. You can't be talking about uh, seven, eight-year-olds uh, pregnant. Well, what they're saying, I, I spoke to the Department of Basic Education, they have launched a program which was uh, launched last year, the Integrated School Health Program, where they're working with other departments like the Department of Health, the Department of Social Development, and they're saying this is their response to such matters, you know, they're providing health services, they're providing counseling services at schooling level, although it, ha it hasn't spread to all schools, but um, other some schools have already um, do already have access to these services. All right, and that uh, is our senior education reporter, Angela Bolowana, speaking to us about the shocking discovery of over 100 grade 3 learners who fell pregnant in 2009. More education stories. Basic Education Minister Enjim Tsekha is considering raising the controversial 30% metric pass requirement, and she wants South Africans advice. The Department of Basic Education is calling for the public to make submissions on what will be deemed a quality metric pass. This is the second bill the department is working on following public pressure. The last one was on norms and standards on school infrastructure. Now the department is asking the public to outline what they want if 30% is not enough for a pass. 
On the line, we're joined on by uh, on the line, we're joined by Professor Bram Flish, acting dean of uh, the School of Education at Wurz University. Professor, good, uh, good day to you and welcome to Midday Live. Just a correction: I'm not the acting dean. I'm the head of the division of educational leaderships and policy studies at the Wits School of Education. We do apologize yes, for that. Uh, firstly, what is your understanding of this 30% pass rate? Does it affect the quality of education or is it just the lowering of passing mark? I think it's very important to stress that it's obviously a very important emotional issue, but the broad issue in South Africa is that large number of children are not really learning at the level that we think is appropriate for the country. So we need to recognize that the underlying issue that we currently face, and it's not just at the secondary schools, but even at the primary schools, is that we have significant portion of our learner population that are not meeting the minimum requirements of our, our, uh, our curriculum. The Department of Basic Education is now calling for the public to make submissions on what will be deemed a quality metric pass. What do you make of this? I think clearly it reflects the exasperation, the concerns, the, the deep concerns that the public have about the quality of learning in our system. And I think everybody is trying to find a mechanism to improve the quality of education. And clearly the metric pass and raising the metric card is seen as a potential vehicle for doing this. I'm not convinced, however, that it will necessarily do that. Okay, what in your view should be the focus during this process? Look, I think overall we need to recognize that the problem in our education system is located in our primary schools. The research consistently shows that a significant portion of South African children, and particularly kids studying in informal settlements in townships and rural communities, are not reading, writing, and doing mathematics at the requisite level. And I think that the first and primary responsibility of government, of stakeholders, of parents, is to concentrate explicitly on improving primary schools. It's clear that if children aren't really strong readers and writers and understand and can do mathematics well, whatever happens in the secondary schools will be very difficult for them to succeed. All right, and that's uh, Professor Brahma Flush, and he is from uh, Wurz University. In an attempt to learn more about uh, future declarations of teaching posts, the Eastern Cape Education Department has uh, dispatched a fact-finding team to KwaZulu-Natal to examine the feasibility of uh, introducing a three-year multi-term agreement in declarations. This was revealed by MEC Mandla Makupul uh, during a media briefing in East London. He has declared more than 55,000 teaching posts for the 2014-2015 fiscal year. And, uh, of course, we are trying to get the Chief Director of Human Resources at the Department of Education in the Eastern Cape Province, and that's uh, Mr. Welile Bai. And we'll see if we'll be able to get him. He is on the line, Mr. Bai. Good uh, day to you, and welcome to Midday Live. Yes. Uh, take us through the latest post declarations and how you plan to implement them. Uh, yes, they have declared the post establishment by the NC. The head of the department is required by the law to begin the consultation process on the distribution of that post basket that has been declared by the NC to the various schools in the province. A meeting is scheduled for Friday, which will then discuss the modus operandi in terms of the principles that will guide the distribution of those posts to the various schools in the province, which will then culminate with a process after the that consultation meeting. Schools will then be issued with the individual post establishment that says how many posts goes to those particular schools of which there is a there are two processes that we do. There's a pre-post uh, final school establishment of which the schools have to confirm the accuracy because the issue in the main is to confirm the data that that is in terms of the learner numbers according to which the distribution of courses will be made to those particular schools. Mm. So after receiving that confirmation from schools, we then issue the we review each appeal or if there's any comments or any complaints about the inadequacies or changes of the number because remember there is an annual survey that's done by the department which then indicates these are the numbers of the schools. But in terms of the admission there may have been changes 
in terms of what the numbers are actually are in the school follows the subsequent to that annual service. So those are the things that school principals normally confirm and they are compared when they're doing the confirmation to call to convene staff meetings within each and every school. All right, Mr. Bay. Among the issues plaguing the department is the issue of the 2,300 temporary teachers whose term expired in June this year. Have they been absorbed uh, into the system? Yes, the temporary educators are not going to be terminated. They are being extended until 31st March 2014 in line with the budgeting processes. So we're not terminating any temporary educators. But what will then happen in the process subsequent to the declaration there's going to be an engagement with even our stakeholders in terms of how we deal with the issues. For example, one of the issues that we currently have that we retain, because some of the temporary educators are not necessarily temporary because they would have been temporary, but it's just because others will be people that come from outside, the foreigners who teaches the critical school subject or math and science uh, school subjects, which are not necessarily readily available from the additional educators that we have in the system. Some are teaching technical subjects, which you don't necessarily get a professional qualified degree. So it's not automatic that come a particular day you'll get rid of those people. Some are professional educators, but the issue that we're saying that, yes, it doesn't necessarily mean that come to the first month, whoever was temporarily permanent release or whoever is additional or is in access will be released. But there is a process that we're following that looking focuses on natural attrition as a way of managing the the the, the I mean the, the issue of ensuring that those are the access and we still need them at least with open space. There are people that are in ranges in the ages right. of sixty which are in the normal retirement age. There are people that are been on sick leave for some time. We shouldn't say no they should, we should target them and offer them this retirement so that at least we reduce that burden. But in terms of the discussions and everything that must continue, the intention is never to change any particular person, but it will be to carry them in terms of the requirements why they can, because even though we might say there's an additional because uh, additional educator, but in reality, in some instances, those people are actively teaching, not saying somebody right. Mr. Bai, other issues in terms of infrastructure at schools in the province, have you made improvements on the so-called math schools? There is a uh, project that's being done by the Department of Program Assistance of Nicole-RCD. I guess there is a, though I've got a limited information, but there is a program that's being pursued in that regard. I know they have not necessarily all been eliminated, but the issue that there is a dedicated program that deals with math schools in the province under the RCT program, which is in the main financed by the national government. And briefly, how are you addressing the issue of uh, overcrowding at schools? The issue of the overcrowding, first, the schools are not supposed to admit learners beyond the capacity of the infrastructure that they have. Yes, you do have those uh, historical problems in terms of schools that were never built in some other issues that when the admissions are done in school, they're supposed to be guided by infrastructure in terms of what the capacity of each school can take. But the issue is that it's a... Matter that the, the, because there is the, 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 in some instances there are interim arrangements that are made through providing of back homes in certain schools that you might find where there is justification for that. But in some instances it's an issue that would not have been planned that because of the admission later than the, because for example admission should by now having been completed, but in some instances in most of the Previous cities are schools, they continue with the admissions until time. Right. But in some instances where there is a justifier because the department has been able to provide park homes which are provided as classrooms. And that was the Chief Director of Human Resources at the Department of Education in the Eastern Cape Province, Mr. Welile Pai. Hi, I'm Valen Kirti. 
I'm a Shake the World Ambassador, which means that I support the eight millennium development goals set by the United Nations in 2000. Lime green, orange and dark green bees adorn my wrist because I support goal two, achieving primary education. Goal number three, promoting gender equality and empowering women. And goal seven, ensuring environmental sustainability. These are massive tasks which will need the energy of millions. My support is how I shake the world. How do you shake the world? This is SAFM. And we now cross to Mpomore from uh, Sesfin Securities. Mpomore, good day to you. How has uh, a slightly weaker and affected trade this afternoon? Uh, good afternoon, Sisanda. Market is trading flat uh, off the day's lows held by gold shares, uh, uh, which were spared uh, slightly by a firmer gold price and a weaker rent. Markets are weaker in Europe, where the foot is down uh, 0.8%, DEX down half a percent, and the KEC 40 is three quarters of a percent lower. Back to the JSC, we've got the gold index up half a percent, resource index up 0.15 of a percent, industrial index up 0.1 of a percent, financial index down 0.3 of a percent. The overall market is unchanged at uh, 43,944 points. All right, and there's very little news other than uh, an announcement by Imperial. Uh, yes, Imperial announced that uh, its CEO, Mr. Herbert Brody, will be stepping down during the first half of 2014 calendar year. He will, however, remain as a non-executive director. Imperial is currently trading 1.8% lower at 216 rents and 99 cents. All right, uh, any big movers today? Uh, on the upside, with African Bank up 4.1% to 17 rents and 57 cents. Life Healthcare up 3.3% to 37 rents and 59 cents. Goldfields up 1.3% to 45 rands and 39 cents. Netcare up one and quarter percent to 24 rands and 50 cents. Aveng up 1% to 24 rands and 95 cents. On the downside, we've got Artron down 5.2% to 22 rands and 75 cents. Northern Platinum down 4.2% to 39 rands and 5 cents. Pick and pay stores down 2.6% to 41 rands and 38 cents. Associated ore down 2.4%. To 420 rands and 83 cents, and lastly, Lonmin down 2.2 percent to 50 rands and 60 cents. Mpo, what are the latest market indicators? The gold price is currently quoted at $1,294.67 an ounce, platinum $1,385.35 a fine ounce, Brent crude $106.95 per barrel. The Garmin R157 is trading at yield of 6.18 percent. And now to our currencies, the range to the dollar is at 10 rands and 13 cents. The range to the euro is at 13 rands and 70 cents. The range to the pound is at 16 rands and 43 cents. Back to Susanda. And that's Mpom Moreff from Assessment Securities. Households with an income of less than 3,500 rand a month are spending 8% of it on clothing and footwear. This is according to analysis done by a consultancy firm known as 8020 on data released by Statistics South Africa. The analysis also revealed that the poorest spend more on cell phones and airtime than schooling or education. Even the wealthiest spend only about 4% of their income on education. For more on this, we joined on the line by the co-founder of 8020, the consultancy the firm that did the study to discuss the findings. And, uh, of course, uh, we are joined on the line by uh, um, Ilan Nelza. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, is, is it Miss or Mr. Nelza? It's Ilana. And it's, Ilana. Uh, I don't know what I am. You can call me Ms. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lana, for your time. And I do apologize for that. Firstly, what information? what information is your analysis based on? It's based on uh, Statiso data, uh, which they collected during the 2010-2011 income and expenditure survey. That's a very extensive survey that they conduct primarily to determine the weightings in the CPI. Um, uh, So it's a very extensive survey. I think they reached and interviewed over 25,000 households in South Africa. Mm. Uh, Let's elaborate, elaborate further on your findings and what the major highlights were. 
Well, I think um, for us, the, the, the expenditure patterns are interesting and headline-grabbing, and we kind of all sit up and take notice. But, but actually what we're more interested in is why, why people spend the way they do. Um, and, and that's a fascinating question in South Africa. Why do we see these patterns? Why, why you, know, one would all, one, you know, we would all like to see people spending more money on the things that we think are good things for people to spend on. Um, why is it that they don't? And, um, of course, when you, when you look at things, sometimes numbers that appear to be surprising at first, when you think about them a little bit, actually they're not so surprising. For example, when you think about education in South Africa, particularly poor people, um, uh, low-income households, uh, uh, receive free education. Likewise with healthcare. Healthcare is free if you're, if you're, if you're poor. So it's not surprising then that you, that you don't spend. Um, I think the critical issue to, to, to think about is, is what is the impact of free and what are the problems with free? And, and we know that there are so many issues. Um, for example, one problem with free is that, uh, as they say, free is worth every cent you pay for it. So sometimes you get things for free that are not very good. And, and in some cases that's been the tragedy in South Africa, that we have um, uh, expanded access. We've succeeded tremendously in expanding access to, to services, but sometimes the quality of those services are not good. Mm. And then at the same time, you might want to um, buy you know, up into the private sector where the quality is better, but you can't afford to. So, so that creates what we call gap markets, where, where they're, they're just not the things available that you might want to spend your money on because you can't afford the next alternative. Mm. And I think that's a critical, critical issue that we really highlight in this, in this presentation. I mean, conducting this study, did you get the answer as to why? You know, I think you never know why. I mean, sometimes I look at the things I spend my money on and I think to myself, why did I do that? You know, we never really know why we spend on the things we spend. But but I think there are these broad factors that shape things. And certainly what government is doing is critical in South Africa, absolutely critical. If you think about just, just you know, Look at the way our cities look, you know. We've, we've had this extensive uh, program of building subsidy houses uh, for low-income households. It's changed the way things look in South Africa. It's phenomenal, actually. It's three and a half million more households living in proper housing in South Africa than we had in 2001, so if you compare what came out of census 2011. And the house, when you think about your house, think about what really shapes the way you spend your money, a lot of that is because of how you live, where you live, what kind of house you live in. So if you think about where you live, well, obviously that determines your transport costs. If you think about services, utilities, whether you've got a mortgage or you're paying rent, you know, if you just look at those two things, those housing-related costs and transport-related costs, that's about 40% of, of expenditure, of your consumption expenditure uh, on average in South Africa. Obviously it changes um, as you move into different segments of the market. So that's absolutely critical. Uh, and government has played a significant role in shaping housing patterns. Ilana, any recommendations uh, coming out of the study? I think, I think certainly for the private sector, a lot of, a lot of thinking around those opportunities and where those gap markets are and what kind of services that could be provided affordably into markets uh, that probably do exist but are not being served. And then probably for policymakers, a lot of thinking around how we determine who gets what for free uh, and what the impact of that is on, on uh, associated markets. All right, and that's uh, Ilana Nelson, co-founder of uh, AT20. Hi, I'm John de Villiers. And we got to spend time with the captain talking pops and books, family. And fish. Meet the cast of Rush, the story of Formula One's most epic rivalry. In a top-filling exclusive, Benung gets closer to the truth about Sher. And TV presenter to an actress, Boiti Tulo, invites us into her home. Yes, and Boiti now with the long hair, only on Top Killing. That's this Thursday, 8.30, only on SABC3. Almost one in three South Africans will suffer from a psychological disorder in their lives, yet there's very little support for people with mental illness. There are a huge number of people suffering from quite severe mental illness in our communities in this country. We look at the alarming state of mental health care in South Africa. One in three South Africans have access to treatment. It is alarming, it is very concerning. Watch Special Assignment Sunday at 9.30 on SABC3. Create is proudly presented by Business and Arts South Africa, bringing the business of the arts and the art of business together. We are home. I can see it, but now I can smell it too.
In association with Drama for Life, the production Hayani is currently showing at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg. Meaning home in Chivenda, Hayani explores the theme of home, the sense of belonging, and what it truly means to be South African. The play is written by two performers, Nat Ramabulana and Atando Kani, who share their personal life stories of growth and change by recollecting both painful and happy memories and weaving them together with both places and people who define home for both the artists. According to Nat Ramabulana, the production started off as his thesis for his honours in drama. What I was doing in the thesis, I was sort of just looking at my influences in my life as to what contributed to my becoming an actor. Because at the time, I was struggling with this idea of wanting to perform white English gentleman roles. But here I was a black kid, and I was like, am I allowed? At the same time, I also wanted to play, um, you know, your totsy, hardcore thug roles. But, you know, I grew up in the burbs. Uh, my mom was a domestic worker and my father was a gardener so I, I don't know if I was allowed to so that sort of brought me to the question of you know what is a South African actor being South African being an actor what limits do we place on ourselves and then it sort of all came down to the question of identity and who I am and being black male all of that stuff so I looked into that I looked into my history and when I sort of wrote it down into the thesis and you know with all the arguments and the different theorists I just discovered I was a person and I need to celebrate being a person and who I am and where I come from and allow that to come through and heal and allow myself to move on. He's walking towards a huge white bright light and the closer he gets to the light the more he disappears. After being given the thesis to read, Carney said that it was the honesty of Ramabulana's recollections that struck him at first, and in turn, it also challenged him to do the same. It was very well written, first of all. I mean, that's the first thing you notice about a piece of writing. The next thing that struck me is that he was very honest about his life. I mean, everything was noted, and things I thought at the time that I would have shied away from. And with that, I saw a bit of myself in his journey. I saw parallels, and in parallels, there were contrasts as well. I mean, where he was light, I had the darkness in, but in the same journey, and when I had the lightness, he had a darkness in the same journey and it felt that we were doing the same thing at the same times in our lives and I just realized at that point that coming into this process and having to write my own sort of sub-thesis in order to match this wouldn't be that hard because it was so easy for me to be honest with myself after having read him being honest about himself. Being the son of Dr. John Carney, Atando said that at times it was challenging telling some intimate family memories. I had to first of all not even consider the fact that I was connected to someone of great status. This is my truth as well. It's my honesty. And that's what I had to hold dear. That's what I had to protect. That's what I had to bring to the table. It's mine. I own these memories and I own this honesty about this family life. So I couldn't have started saying, what is my old man going to think of this if I expose this? That I'm already losing. The only thing I can do is own mine. And it is hard. But it, it has to be as hard for me as it is for Nat and vice versa. And we had to sort of negate that and be like, let's tell our story because it's ours. The two actors admit that the comedic elements and structures of the play came naturally. I don't think we did it consciously. The comedic element, I think it's just the nature of the honesty. Just the irony of the story. That's what more we paid attention to. But it's nice that it's funny. And it's nice that we can play up the funny and release. And people can enjoy. And we can laugh at ourselves. We never sat down and thought about the structure of it. We just wanted to play memory. And starting from the journey to a young age, just a parents meeting, then there's you were born, and then there's the meat of your life and then where you are now is seems like a very natural way to go. So it's a natural progression. Mm. And we just surrendered to the process and that's what happened. Hayani offers some excellent references to protest theatre of the 80s and is a must-see, an exploration of boys growing up in post-apartheid South Africa. I'm Michelle Constant. This feature was produced by Monique Stunder and you can email me on create at barsa.co.za. Create. Proudly brought to you by Business and Arts South Africa, creating new opportunities for business arts partnerships. Email create at baza.co.za. And of course, that's all we have for you this afternoon. Thanks for joining us, and many thanks to the team. Mandisam Gailus, Tarazelo Zamini, and Mabubuluka. Technical producer Mark Prela, senior producer Nomalizo Mandela, executive producers Busi Chane and Aubrey Sijia. I'm Susanna Jonas from me. It's goodbye and do take care. Up next, your one o'clock news with Utsile Sako.